Today is June 3rd, 2014, and this is episode 115. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new field of study. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor before making any decisions whatsoever for yourself. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine. We're joined once again by the other hosts of Let's Talk Bitcoin, Stephanie Murphy. Hello. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Mt. Gox is dead. May it rest in pieces. Recently, new information has shed some light on the inner workings of that mess in the months and years before the crash, but it doesn't look good. We've got a pair of guests on to help us explore this topic. Scott Maxwell is the primary over at CryptocurrencyMadeSimple.com. Scott, thanks for being here today. My pleasure. Rounding out today's panel, we've got Kai Chang of the Mt. Gox 500 analysis over at Bitcoin.Stamen.com. Kai, thanks for being here. Thanks, Adam. It's a pleasure. So, Scott, let's start from the basics. What happened here? Well, what we're looking at is an attempt by the community around Mt. Gox to make some kind of sense about where all that cash went. At the end of the, uh, the, the crash, we were roughly 650,000 Bitcoins down and very little fiat currency to show for it. Now, either there was a hack uh, or there was an exploit uh, through DDoS, which may think, or maybe there's something else going on here. And over the last couple of days, some data has been published, which suggests that it's something else, that it's an insider job. So the official story that we got was that this was transaction malleability. It was, you know, as we talked about in an earlier episode, it was people attacking a store with fraudulent return slips, essentially, and taking out, you know, and getting back more money than they rightly deserved. So is that, I mean, is that at all plausible in this explanation based on this new information? It's, uh, it's looking less and less likely. The, uh, the, the data doesn't lie. The transaction malleability, if you analyze the same data, accounts for maybe about 30,000 clash transactions, which when you take into account the fact that transaction malleability more often than not fails, that drops down to about 1,000 transactions. Maybe six, 700 of those uh, were actual thefts. So it just doesn't account for the, the order of magnitude of the, um, of the loss we're seeing. So what was the information that actually became available? I mean, like, how is this analysis possible where previously it was not? Well, the data that's being analyzed has been around for um, over a month now. There, there are two data sets. One is uh, as a leaked set of logs, which um, has come around about the time of the crash itself. And the second is the same logs, but with very specific uh, differences. And it's those differences that's allowed the, the analysis. Were these logs uh, leaked at the same time by the same person, or are they two different leaks? It looks like the uh, the same log has been edited. That one has been leaked by a Mt. Gox insider, but the second one has got out through another route. And this second one is the non-anonymized uh, set of logs. So for the first time, we can see user IDs. We can see a lot more detail about uh, the transactions, and uh, we can start to analyze them properly. Before that, the um, the bots that we're talking about, and there does look to be a, a few accounts that these bots have traded in, were deleted. So they simply weren't there in the, the data. And uh, what we're now seeing is those bots have been there all along. 
Well, that's a, that's a pretty strong signal. The absence of bots in the first place, presumably those were in the log. So someone deliberately deleted their tracks. Is that a likely explanation for why they were missing from the first set of logs? It's, it's certainly one set of uh, explanations around someone trying to, um, to hide what's going on here. It's not necessarily the only way that uh, that information could have been left out, but certainly it's suggestive. Let me ask you, Scott, these logs, um, are these uh, logs of the database? Are they logs from the software application, the trading application itself? Are they syslog logs? What type of logs are they? These are uh, transaction logs. So these are logs from the database of actual transactions completed. Are these generated by a specific SQL query, uh, do you believe, in terms of reporting? Or do you think these are, were routinely dumped to a text file as they were happening? The data looks like it's the um, sort of data you want to keep if you're at some point to go back and audit and understand exactly who owns what. Now, the fact that the um, the logs have been there building up for some time and the fact that there have been discrepancies which weren't found for some time suggests that they weren't actually used for auditing or certainly not by external sources. But uh, that's, that's the sort of use that this information would have been put in another exchange. You said that in the second set of logs, there were bots. What do you mean by bots exactly? Well, these are automated trading algorithms. And the algorithms would work on uh, a set of rules, a set of buy orders, and a set of sell orders, and can be more or less sophisticated. And we're looking at two types, and both types show up very clearly in Kai's data, which we can show the, uh, look at the visualization later on. The Willy bot is the one that gives the name to the Willy report. And this appears to, uh, to have done nothing but buy Bitcoins. Um, slowly, steadily, uh, slightly randomly, between 10 and 20 Bitcoins every um, five to 10 minutes. Um, but the the trading bot sat there buying the Bitcoins um, come what may for, for some time. Um, it actually bought into multiple accounts, which is uh, quite interesting. So whenever it got to the point of um, having about two and a half million dollars worth of Bitcoins, it would open a new account. The, the second trading bot shows up as what um, uh, almost looks like a glitch in the system. It uh, always buys for um, zero fees, which is uh, unusual. Um, it buys into a, a single account, um, but the money that it generates or is generated in that transaction appears to be random. And part of the analysis is trying to understand why that, that is. So regardless of the number of Bitcoins uh, being bought, the money being paid for it doesn't seem to correlate. Um, in some cases, a large number of Bitcoins are bought for very little. In other cases, the reverse. And what appears to be happening, and uh, this is an old coding um, gotcha, is the uh, the previous um, value in the log is the one that's being used as the fee it spends. So if the person who um, transacted immediately before you happened to spend $15, then this transaction is also worth $15 uh, exactly. And that points to something that's uh, actually not using fiat money at all to, to buy. Kai, can you tell us a bit more about the analysis and how did you arrive at these conclusions? What was your methodology? Well, let's just go back a little bit to, to when the data was leaked. Um, this is in March of uh, 2014 that I took this data. I found it in a torrent on Reddit. And the data, it was trade data. So 
For every trade, there would be two parties. A trade consists of a buyer and a seller. And you're both buying and selling sort of opposites. Whatever you put in, the other will get out. That's what this data contains. There's a lot of duplicate data, data issues. Okay, so tell us about those du- duplicate data sets. Okay, so the duplicate data is, um, if you run a SQL query, you get a, you get a bunch of rows back, basically this array of rows. And if you just took the database and, and loaded it in and started computing sums, you'd see that there were about 20 million trades. Um, I would say maybe four to five million were just the same data had been returned twice and ended up in two files or sometimes would end up in one file 17 times. So your totals are going to be wrong because you don't have the right set of trades that took place. Of course, if there was a bug in Mt. Gox, maybe those trades did take place and that money was paid out. So, you know, what is data and what is wrong or incorrect? Difficult to work out in this case. You were drawing your data from one of the leaks. Is that correct? Because there were two leaks and they were separated by in information that were contained in one of them, but not the other and a period of time, right? This was in March of 2014, so two months ago. Your data set had the user IDs or it didn't have them? It had user IDs and it also had deposit withdrawal data. And the deposit withdrawal data had transaction IDs. It had transaction IDs, but it had an amount and a time. This is the sort of thing that you could take the withdrawal data and go to the Bitcoin blockchain and see if this user account basically withdrew at this time and tried to do these sort of identity attacks on the Bitcoin network. And this is not part of the data that, that I visualized. I only visualize uh, the trade data because it, there's these ethical issues of really exposing the whole sort of community to these identity attacks. Um, mm-hmm. You were working with the data that included the data from these bots, right? Willie and Marcus? Um, it did, yeah. I didn't quite do analysis. I sort of took the top 500 users by volume um, and did this with, with my partner, Mary Beska. We just ordered them by volume and just tried to plot every single trade that they made. I sort of st- told, told these stories around Bitcoin barons and sort of greater fools and, and bots and this sort of really strange user. It's not, I wouldn't say it's analysis. They're not, it's not conclusions. They're sort of this kind of fairy tale I made up. You know, it's not, I don't treat it as evidence. Um, so, but you've taken uh, the top 500 users from this leaked data from Mt. Gox and you've grafted in a visual form in a way that makes it easier for people to understand. And you said that you got a story out of that. I mean, what is the story basically? Well, the story to me is that when people look at this data, they, um, I mean, they sort of see these trends. I didn't do any trending. There's no, I didn't do any statistics or regressions or any, any sort of this formal analysis. All I did was plot the data. So if you look at this data and you may be heavily influenced by these sort of example stories we, we created at the top, which are not necessarily true. Like this, this greater fool one, we, we suggested they may be investment groups. In the Willie report, it suggested that these are, these are biased by Willie. Although the, this, these greater fools generally make really large, big trades, whereas I think Willie sort of at 10 to 20 Bitcoin here. W- Willie was a trading pattern that was observed. Um, this is back in November and December 2013 of last year in the public sort of trading feed coming out of Mt. Gox. People would notice that Mt. Gox was down, but every couple of minutes there would be a buy for 10 to 20 Bitcoin, even when no one else could trade. And so this activity, the community... Reddit especially decided to call Willie. 
Yeah, and that was unusual because this bot was trading when Mt. Gox was supposedly down. When you say that Willie was trading while the network was down, was Willie also the one that was occasionally trading without paying fees, or is that a different bot? Willie was paying fees. It was Marcus that was uh, that was trading without um, without paying anything. And so essentially, uh, in- those two data points point that both of those bots had positioning in the market that was quite distinct from any of the bots that might be operating via the regular APIs. They had insider status somehow, either maintaining network connectivity when there was none for anyone else or being able to achieve trades without fees that nobody else was able to do. Exactly. And uh, in the the logs, the um, the activity during the, the downtime is quite stark. The only bots trading, the only people trading on Mt. Cox were these bots. That's pretty damn evidence. I, th- I think it's, it's quite important to to be somewhat circumspect about what it points to. Um, what it does show is that something inside the perimeter was running these bots. It doesn't necessarily point to any individual or, or group. The potential that a hacker has got in and has compromised uh, the system to such an extent where it's installed these bots and um, can make trades out, create accounts and create um, US dollars at, at will just by changing the database. Um, although um, that kind of exposure would be um, very dramatic, uh, it's not out of the question. Um, there have been a few um, people pointing to the the lack of security and the the lack of patching uh, in the Linux build that was used and the um, the general lack of professionalism around it. If this were a trading platform in New York or London, then the physical security, the IT security around it would have made this sort of thing impossible. Even if there had been activity that was unexplained, the logs themselves would have been logged and made uh, um, secure in such a way that would be unimpeachable. It really shows what an advantage Bitcoin is in that we have a public ledger um, that's constantly being verified every 10 minutes and whenever you download it, you know, you verify every transaction on the blockchain. Whereas here we have a private ledger and we actually get a leak of the private ledger. We find it's very problematic. Very, uh, may not be something we would have all agreed to. How yeah. long ago did the trading start for these bots with this abnormal behavior? I mean, like, was this from the beginning at Mt. Gox, or how far back does it go? It's uh, it's difficult to see. The um, the the log data itself isn't complete, and uh, in the Willie report, we've only got two days uh, towards the tail end of November where it's very clear what's what's going on. And the um, the author, the anonymous author, says that he first became aware of it in December thirteen um, through to January. And then Marcus picked up seven hours after the, um, the Willie bots um, stopped and took it from there. Uh, whether it goes back before that gets more circumstantial. Certainly, there seems to be there seems to be evidence to say that these bots moved the market, and that's the important point here. It manipulated the the price of Bitcoin. The April bubble um, may well have been caused in the same way, but there's far less data. So the time frame, as I understand it, that's being analyzed here goes back, I think, to about summer 2013 or maybe back to April 2013. And it stops at the end of November 2013. Is that correct? The uh, the, the torrent that was released on Reddit two months ago actually goes back to April 2011 and goes to November 2013. Mm-hmm. So if you, okay. if you any of these graphs on com, you'll actually get a um, time axis on the bottom 
and you'll see a month that it goes back. Back to the idea that there were these two bots that had very unusual trading activity, trading when Mt. Gox was supposedly down and paying zero fees. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine that that would go unnoticed. Yes, it is, isn't it? Uh, uh, either there was uh, wanton blindness, frankly, on the on the part of uh, the people whose responsibility it was to the um, the customers to make sure that this uh, system was um, was secure, or there was something perhaps more nefarious going on, or just an incompetence or you know misunderstanding of how this would play out. There, there, there could be legitimate reasons why. You know, there's two more bots. There's also THK, which is a very really strange one. And that's user one in uh, the Bitcoin 500. It actually only sells. It sold like 2.9 million Bitcoin. Um, and there were some posts mm-hmm. when this data was released on, uh, they posted on WordPress, posted on Reddit about what this user was. Uh, there's one more too, Saban Limited HK, which I did not graph because it basically only trades with itself. People suspected that was a currency exchange bot. So there's more. You know, it's a whole market here. It's all the Mt. Gox trading data. From 2011 to 2013, that's like three Bitcoin bubbles. It's everyone trading in this marketplace. Can you talk about um, a couple of the more interesting traders that you came across in uh, graphing these various individuals? Yeah, yeah the first one I called uh, Bitcoin Barons, and I put it at the front. I sort of call a Bitcoin Baron anyone who started sort of selling Bitcoin early, especially people who you know running the mining client early on in 2011 on a you know, even CPU or graphics card. You know, these are people who were trading for a long time. User 145 is like this. User 3, 33, 34, 35, 36. There's dozens of them. They could be mining pools. BTC Guild is on here. So and the thing that, that distinguishes these Bitcoin barons as you're defining them is that they that they got involved in the market early or that they sold before the, when the price was high, before it went down? Consistently. You know, you could come up with your, your own rules because I think everyone is sort of a mix of different, you know, these different archetypes. And the, they're trying to create value for themselves somehow with Bitcoin. And they have other currencies that they want to trade and everyone is trading. And as time goes on, you know, what... What you do change changes. User 40 is really interesting. So user 40, for instance, sold little bits of Bitcoin in 2011, you know, for small amounts of money. And then in 2013, just started buying Bitcoin like crazy. So he sold when it was, you know, super valueless and just started buying tons of Bitcoin when it was worth a lot. And so something, you know, changed in this user's mind that they decided to use their account to do the opposite activity. So one of the things I was reading about this analysis, and again, I, I think it's 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 right to not take any positions as to whether this was just gross incompetence, which is certainly no uh, uh, good judgment of the outcome, or it was outright fraud, inside a fraud or a hacker or something else. But one of the things I've been reading is the possibility that some of these bots essentially represented market-making VIP clients or big whales who who had some kind of agreement with the trading exchange to get specific trades done automatically on a priority basis, essentially front-running trades, which is a different, uh, essentially, judgment on what the bots are doing because maybe they were actually representing clients is still in a, in a way that's, that's highly unethical and preferential to, towards some people making an uneven market. What's your opinion on that? 
that's true for some of the activity, for some of the willy spends, and especially late in the day. There does appear to be um, Bitcoin's trading at far lower than the market rates, and that may well be uh, the uh, the platform trying to increase liquidity when they are having difficulty with uh, people trying to withdraw funds. It doesn't explain how Marcus managed to buy so many Bitcoins without any money backing it up whatsoever. So a, a VIP would still have um, the fiat funds and that would be represented in the system, but the Marcus buys had no funds behind them. So there's, there's also the possibility that it's not one explanation that fits all of these bot behaviors. Maybe some bots were essentially known to the owners or known to represent clients. Other bots were unauthorized. Maybe some were run by hackers. Maybe some were run to do fraud. Some were run to do market making. There could be different explanations for different bots, correct? That's right. That's an interesting idea because I was kind of confused reading the Willie report about, well, why would there be these two major bots and probably lots of other little littler ones that were influencing the market so much? But that that explanation explanation makes more sense. Think of a scenario perhaps where one bot was created to do market making job and then someone broke in or an insider took advantage of that and then created a second one based on the same code base that was doing something very different, something very nefarious. Uh, and on the surface, perhaps they appear and operate very similarly, but one actually has trades, real trades, the other one does not. And again, it could be the same person who created both bots, or it could be someone copying the bot and then using it to, to do something with very different goals. CryptoKit is the world's first Chrome browser Bitcoin wallet. It's the easiest, fastest Bitcoin wallet payment system. With a simple one-click install, it takes just seconds to get your wallet set up. And because CryptoKit finds the address and payment for you, there's no more fussing around or tab switching. CryptoKit is more than just a wallet. It comes with a preloaded PGP-encrypted social network, news feeds from Reddit and Google, and up-to-date charts from exchanges. Finally, CryptoKit directory allows you to make two-click payments with any of the BitPay merchants. Once you install CryptoKit, you won't need anything else. For more information or to download CryptoKit, visit CryptoKit.com. Hi, listener. Here at Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're building a global network of correspondents able to contribute on-the-ground perspective when cryptocurrency-related information comes across their filters. If you'd like to join our global conversation, send an email with your name and geographic or cultural niche to apply at letstalkbitcoin.com. Just like Bitcoin, the only barrier to entry is your time and good work. Thanks for listening. How much U.S. dollar, basically fake liquidity from Marcus are we talking about here? It looks like uh, in the region of about 110, 112 million dollars. 
So and what happened to those Bitcoins? I mean, like, that's the thing I'm sitting here thinking. I'm like, oh, what? this sounds like there's a lot of, of movement here on both sides, on the buying and the selling side. But yet you're saying that no money was actually changing hands in these cases. These bots didn't actually buy in. Some one of them didn't even pay uh, pay trading fees. So, you know, what happens? Did, did Were any of those Bitcoins ever pulled out by the bots? Were they sold? I mean, like, did they just buy and hold to, to lower uh, lower supply? On the larger of it, it looks like most of them stayed in the system. And this is the interesting thing about the um, about what the bots were doing. And it does um, speak to a story. In effect, we had uh, a bot buying Bitcoins. And at first, it was backed up by real money. And then it was buying it with fake money, which, frankly, was just a, a, a database number, which was increased. And the result was the value of Bitcoin is pushed higher for everyone. So if you imagine um, you've got two funds, one is real money, the other one's magic money. If you uh, spend the magic money and the price goes up, the value you're holding in real terms also goes up and you make money on the margin. If anyone tries to um, cash out of the, the trade that you've just bought their Bitcoins for, it's fine so long as uh, you've got the Bitcoin value going up. And that is the Ponzi scheme part of it. The problem comes is you are betting on the price always going up. And an event uh, such as the Silk Road um, crash, which pushed the value down, would have reversed that. So what we could be also seeing is an attempt to write our wrong position. It's, uh, it's something that happens in um, commercial banks as well. If you find yourself exposed on the wrong side of the rules, then you try and break more rules to get yourself back in. In fact, that's that's really the most common story of how um, insider trading Ponzi schemes and things like that develop. It starts with an overleveraged position that turns sour and then uh, crossing the line once to try to fix it and then getting increasingly desperate and pushing more and more money until until the mistake can no longer be hidden. It's not the initial mistake. It's the attempt to cover it up by essentially doubling down on the bet uh, with increasing margins until eventually it becomes unsustainable. We saw that with uh, UBS trader uh, who, who got into a position and over a year trying to cover that up ended up uh, multiplying that position by almost a hundredfold. Exactly. And, uh, and Nick Leeson as well on, on bearings. And uh, there have been um, quite a few examples of people who have started just bending the rules to some extent. And the temptation must be there at this point. Uh, it's lightly regulated and the, the database is simply there to the point where actually now people can't get their money out. And then it becomes headlines and then you start to, to risk everything. And again, this is uh, we're, we're hypothesizing here. But certainly the, the trading towards the end looked like uh, the bots were trying to increase liquidity inside of Mt. Gox. Now, if you were a, a hacker, you wouldn't care about Mt. Gox go down. You'd have your money, you'd be out. Um, but if for whatever reason you did care about that, you'd write it by increasing liquidity, by spending or selling some of those Bitcoins that you uh, bought with fake money. Uh, to turn them into to real money. And, exactly and for some context here, this is this is back in earlier this year where the activity, which we call Willie, which is selling Bitcoin, providing way too much liquidity in Bitcoin, which people didn't take seriously, to the point where what people called Goxplains, they fell to like $160, $100. The price was just totally at variance with what real Bitcoins were selling at on other exchanges. 
Well, but that didn't seem to have much to do with the bots so much as it seemed to have to do with the banking problems, at least that Gox was talking about having at that point. And, you know, that was it, it became later that Bitcoin was restricted. But earlier it was just uh, just dollars and uh, getting other types of fiat currency out. Right. There were liquidity issues on all sides of Mt. Gox at that point. So wherever the liquidity issues got worse, the withdrawals had to be stopped in order to prevent uh, essentially default in a way that revealed the entire problem. If we follow this train of thought and assume that this is the oldest of all Ponzi scheme failings, which is uh, trying to cover up for a small mistake by making bigger and bigger mistakes, then the dollar positions and liquidity problems had to be stemmed by turning off withdrawals there, which means really that the transaction malleability was was a red herring. It was simply an, an excuse, a convenient excuse at the time in order to cover up uh, serious liquidity problems that prevented uh, full withdrawals in Bitcoin and to maintain the scheme for a bit longer in the hope that the market rectified itself to the point where the, the cover up would be complete. That's right, and uh, and that's what's supported by the um, the analysis of whether transaction malleability was at the core of this. And interestingly enough, when um, uh, when the um, exchange was finally closed, there was plenty of liquidity um, in terms of being able to get uh, yen uh, out of the bank. So it was not, never the banks uh, stopping the currency leaving, or certainly it would uh, be indicated by that, it simply was that there wasn't enough liquidity inside of Mt. Gox to pay for everyone who wanted their money out. I have to admit that back then, when I, I saw this problem evolving with transaction malleability, uh, one of the things that was evident was that this wasn't a very serious technical problem, and that all of the other exchanges that were affected by the rush of bots to try out that same trick um, we're able to fix it relatively quickly. And so I was uh, under the impression that if transaction malleability was a problem, it would be fixed pretty soon because it wasn't a very serious problem. Of course, now we know that wasn't the problem. The problem had started possibly more than a year earlier. And certainly been compounded by the pricing action that occurred in October. Looking at what happened with Mt. Gox over the years, that was really the big difference is that previously the price of Bitcoin hadn't gone up so high. So if they had a problem where they you know, were trying to get back Bitcoin, then their problem would have been exponentially made worse by the increase to, you know, a thousand and then twelve hundred dollars. And none of it. I mean, nothing besides that really matters. I don't know. Was Mt. Gox the highest volume exchange? Like, were they actually making the entire market for including for other exchanges where they it, setting it the price depends on what your time frame is, right? If you're talking about like before 2013, then pretty much, yeah, Mount Cox was you know, most of is, the market. This is something that's and just then, interesting about the data because you really get to see this market unfold all the way back from April 2011. And Cox was like 90, 95% of the trading volume of Bitcoin back then, at least online in these exchanges. Uh, an interesting thing to remember is it doesn't take uh, too much activity to push a price if it's done at the, the right moment. So, for example, if um, we're talking about buyers wanting to buy into Bitcoin, certainly as the price was going and the bubble was going up, that's what was happening. And the, the lack of sellers would push up the price faster than would otherwise be um, uh, suggested. And so if you've got something sitting there quite quietly buying the excess Bitcoin, then the price is going to be leveraged higher. That's a really great point. I think it's important to distinguish between 
Gox being responsible for signaling the market that was already predisposed to a big buying spree mm. and the other exchanges following through on that initial signal and perhaps accelerating it a bit. Uh, certainly the, the number of trades and the volume don't, don't say that, well, all of the price increase we saw due to Gox, but it may have precipitated and accelerated a buy sentiment that was already there to the point where it became much bigger than it would have otherwise. Yes, and it appears at least on one occasion to have reversed a, a downward trend. So is this, you know, essentially the tail wagging the dog at Mt. Gox? In a way, markets are notoriously complex things and any attempt to alter those markets, you do it at your own risk. But we all have to participate in markets, you know. It's uh, the only way that rational actors can cooperate. So let's assume for a second that this did have, you know, uh, an impact on the Bitcoin price and possibly even caused these bubbles. I mean, what does that mean for the world that we live in? Does anything change? Do I need to think about anything differently? I mean, like, is Bitcoin less serious or more serious I mean, many, because many of, of the this? actors who, who were trading on Gox still exist and still have large positions, uh, cash or Bitcoin or, you know, whatever kind of capital. These agents and these kind of activities are all out there and they're all happening. You know, every moment. That is what the Willie report says that, you know, the conclusion is that the Willie caused the November bubble. I think the thing that it teaches us is at this stage in its development, Bitcoin needs to move from being almost entirely unregulated to having some form of regulation. The temptation for any exchange or any exchange owners or anyone in a position to manipulate the market, the temptation is massive. And people being who they are, this sort of thing may well reoccur unless controls are put into that. And um, doing everything in broad daylight certainly helps. I think I mentioned earlier on the, um, the benefit of the public ledger, but also requirements to audit, also requirements to um, hold a, a minimum amount of fiat currency in order to have a position of any kind. These are the, um, the the basis for any kind of currency or asset trading, and that's where Bitcoin. And, and for us as users, don't don't treat these exchanges as banks. You can't you can't just leave your Bitcoin in there and expect it to be safe. You have to, you know, take control of your Bitcoin, learn about the protocol. I'm going to challenge you a bit on that, and I would say treat them exactly as banks, which means don't trust them because banks fail all the time. And the reason we have all of these regulations is because when you centralize control over money, people steal it. Everything built in the regulatory system is to prevent that exact thing from happening. And when you say regulate Bitcoin, let's be more precise. Bitcoin didn't fail here. Let's regulate Bitcoin exchanges that are centralized and do not provide a public ledger. A decentralized exchange wouldn't suffer from these problems because people wouldn't have the keys. Uh, a public ledger wouldn't suffer from these problems because you can't fake possession of Bitcoin. For failures of a centralized institution holding custodial accounts in the old way and failed in exactly the same way as every bank and exchange has failed in the history of failure. And yeah, that needs every to be regulated bank and exchange right, that needs to be regulated, but it needs to be regulated because of the failures of centralization has nothing to do with Bitcoin.
I, I couldn't agree more. And you're you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the precise point there's there's three things here at work, isn't there? There's the Bitcoin network and the exchange of crypto assets uh, in using the public ledger. There's the Bitcoin currency itself, which is the one that's that's taking the pounding, but other currencies uh, haven't. And then there's the the medium of bringing people together and having a convenience of a service. And is this last which has been at fault here, none of the other two? In, in some cases, you'll see altcoins uh, kind of point and laugh at these failures of Bitcoin, which leaves them really exposed to a blind spot. The issues of, for example, transaction malleability exist in every alt currency out there because uh, they're all based on the same code base. More importantly, the issues of centralized trading on well, boy, is that a, a can of worms. And the only reason we haven't seen it explode in other parts and other cryptocurrencies is, is a matter of time and scale. I would say it's probably a very good time to open our eyes wide and look very carefully at some of the big players in other coins. And, and there are some big issues in Doge, uh, and specifically one of the big players in that space, uh, where we've had, uh, you know, quite a lot of issues with transparency, accountability, secrecy, and, you know, some concerns by the users in that community. And especially when- I think it's premature to point fingers, but it's certainly asking a lot of questions and people should be open to those. Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of web wallet hacking in Doge where users just lose um, all the funds in their account. Th- these are web wallets that were sort of recommended as the primary wallet you should try if you want something easy. Um. <laughs> Sounds like early Bitcoin. Anybody remember my wallet? Right. Web wallets. Yeah, definitely. You know, Andreas, not all altcoins are based on the same code base as Bitcoin. I agree the vast majority are, but there are a few that, that aren't. Right. And then also you mentioned centralized exchanges. You know, we talked about Next on our 2.0 show a little while ago, and they're not based on the same code base as Bitcoin. They also have a decentralized exchange and there are more coming. Yeah, that's the right way to do it. So let's really focus. What is the issue here? The issue here is taking a decentralized currency artificially creating a single point of failure, a single point of control, and a single point that requires trust by centralizing a specific function, whether that's the exchange function, whether that's a wallet function, custodial access to keys, and then that brings with it the need to centralize regulation around that. So once you start down that path, then you need to carry in all of the baggage of traditional fiat currencies with all of the centralization that implies. Uh, so that's a mistake no matter which currency you do it in. And it will bring all of the same failings that we've seen in the past, uh, b- both in fiat currencies and learned from in Bitcoin. It's bad to centralize wallets. It's bad to centralize exchanges. And the solution to that is not to layer on regulation to build layers of centralized trust on top of that. It's to not de- centralize in the first place, to keep the spirit of decentralization core and and not recreate the errors of the past. I agree. And for me, one of the, the main takeaways of this is how apparently ordinary the, um, the failings uh, in the system is. And it does point to, to people. It's not the technology. It's not the, um, it's not the currency itself. It's the, this, the same old pressures that we've had runs on banks and which has caused us to get to a point where fiat currency is, uh, is regulated to the point where it can be manipulated on a vast scale 
for for national uh, needs. And that's not the place to, to go back here. Uh, I'm very much along the lines of thinking we should be talking about how we agree to be good neighbors in, in this network. How do we uh, interact uh, in ways that we need to in order to make use of the network? The network decentralizes to some extent, but we still need to come together in order to make use of this. And whatever happens next, this technology is being adopted in, in many, many uses. The idea of a decentralized ledger is going to be key to currency for the next 100 years regardless. And so I think it's quite important to agree at this point amongst ourselves exactly how we're going to use this. Trust is at the core of this. And the answer in these cases is not to say, well, we needed to add more trust. We should have vetted Carpellus. We should have vetted Mount Gox more. We should have added regulations so we could add more layers of trust on top of that shaky foundation. The answer really was we should have had less trust. We should have had a zero trust system where it didn't require us to trust anyone because no one could steal the money. A zero trust system where you can't be evil, where you can't steal the money, where you don't have power and it's a public ledger is a much better uh, system going forward. And those systems were not possible before 2008, so they don't immediately come to mind, but they are possible now. We need to resist the temptation of of re-implementing all of the mistakes of the past by building layers of trust. Don't build layers of trust. Zero trust is much better. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to make that argument now, but at the same time, Andreas, it sort of is experiences like this, painful though they are, that prove to people that that's something that's important because otherwise, you know, decentralized exchanges, trustless exchanges, I've been playing around with them for the last couple of months, as I know you have too. And, you know, like they, they have some issues too. There's really no, there's no magic bullet here, you know, that's going to make it so that all of our trading woes go away. You trade one set of problems for another. But yeah, I agree with you that like the trust needs to be sucked out of the system. People need to assume that everyone is a bad actor when it comes to wanting to hold your money. And and the part of the story I love is that Mt. Gox created this Bitcoin bubble and it happens every couple of years, every six months or whatever it is. And it gets the media's attention. And first three, you know, it's all about Gox, Gox, Gox. But we still sort of have this idea of a Bitcoin bubble that, you know, could happen and sort of lives in people's minds. It gets people thinking about the technology. That really is an interesting point because that was very true for me. You know, you talked about uh, the user that sold small amounts of Bitcoin in the early days and then bought lots of Bitcoin in the later days. I think that actually was a lot of people. And I think that the thing that proved, at least to users like myself, that it wasn't going to go away is because it not only had these bubbles, but that it didn't die after the bubbles. It, you know, went down, but then it would come back up to something normal. Lacking the bubbles, though. I don't know if I would have if it would have uh, pulled me in in the way that it did. So, I mean, like, it's a really it's really interesting to think about how even though this is obviously this is obviously a breach of trust in so many ways and obviously a bad thing and an immoral thing in so many ways. At the same time, did it serve a good purpose in drawing attention of, of users that might and not I otherwise think of die? If there's a Bitcoin bubble, you know, my mind will always go back to these to these events that happened. It'll never be be separate for me. It could well be that Mt. Gox is the um, is there to serve as a warning. The Moving from where we are, which is uh, speculating on the um, on the, the value, though, is not making the full use of it. Ultimately, we're we're talking about a network which can give very low friction trades of assets, and that doesn't necessarily need uh, any kind of speculation around it in order to be valuable. Scott Maxwell of CryptocurrencyMadeSimple.com, Kai Chang of Bitcoin.Stamen.com. 
Thanks very much for shedding some clarity with us on this kind of Thank convoluted you, topic. <laughs> we look forward to continuing the story here. Thank you. Sure, this isn't over. Thanks for listening to episode 115 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Stephanie Murphy, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Scott Maxwell, and Kai Chang. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and new artist Gertie Beats. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.